You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, parents, you may not need to hear happy birthday, Jesus, anymore in your home or in those who've been practicing it for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. Hey, I'm a little bit jealous today because uh, I noticed all the kids got to wear their pajamas, and I was really tempted to wear my onesie today, but it may not communicate the real message that, you know, we're trying we're trying for here. So, uh, but I, I seriously thought it would be nice to wear slippers to church today, wouldn't it? Hey, when you think of all the vast sum of humanity, people all over the world in different cultures and different walks of life in every avenue of life, people who work, you know, at the lowest jobs in our culture to the highest jobs in our culture, people who live in other countries, if we think of who in the world actually lives a marvelous life, who would you think in the world actually lives a marvelous life? And what would you say defines a marvelous life? Like, is it riches? Is it they have the greatest experiences? Is it that they have the best memories? What truly defines a marvelous life? I, I think if we try to sell ourselves on what makes our life marvelous, there's probably three different things that helps us define what a marvelous light life could look like. And and one of them would be moments, that we cling to moments. If you worked in fast food, let's say that you were a worker at Del Taco, and you worked in the fast food industry, and you were working the counter, and Chevy Chase came in to your counter and had conversation with you, you might cling to that moment for a long time because Chevy Chase came in and you'd be like, I've seen Christmas vacation. And you'd be like, you know, want to you know, talk about stuff. And he's like, probably everybody talks to me about that at this time of year. And you know, you, but you would cling to that moment and maybe for years and years and years, you'd refer back to that marvelous moment that a celebrity came in and talked to you. How, how many of you actually live in the glory days? You tell the same things over and over and over. Maybe your family's tired of it. Well, you keep going, you keep going, that's good stuff. You don't let them hold you back. You tell that story one more time, right? Other things that we cling to might be opportunities that we look back at our life and in the course of our life, we say, I had the opportunity to truly love someone. That's a gift. Not everyone's given that opportunity that you might say, I had the opportunity to love. Some of you are saying, we had the opportunity to raise a child or to work a career or to play sports or to make a difference or to own something that you really wanted to own. You had an opportunity to live for something greater than yourself. And you would say, this is what defines my life as being a marvelous life. It's either these moments or maybe it's an opportunity or perhaps it's experiences. You know what I'm talking about that experience, that big moment, when for once in your life, you finally got your Red Rider carbine action, 200 shot range model BB gun, and help me out here, your mom said, you'll shoot your eye out. That's right. It's that that experience, all of a sudden you finally got it. Everything you'd hoped and dreamed for. And what happens for us? We become self-promoters and persuaders, right? with social media, as we talk on the phone, as we relate to other people, as we try to show people what we have or what we've done, we become people who are selling and self-promoting to try to convince ourselves and other people that we have moments in our life that are simply marvelous. You might remember Billy Crystal, comedian, who would just say, marvelous, darling, simply marvelous. And when we think of our lives, we got to think, how do we define our life? 
as having moments of being marvelous. It's interesting as you work with people in all seasons of life, that when people hit their deathbed, and there may be some time there where they have, they're waiting for the ultimate battle in life. They can fight against so many other things, but to fight against death is sometimes a longer struggle than people anticipate. And as they're on their deathbed, they typically regret two things. One is that they didn't treasure the relationships in their life enough. And they look back and they might think about their kids, they might think about other people or their coworkers or everything else, and they, they didn't treasure those relationships enough. And there might be regret there. For other people, it's regret over wasted opportunity. I wish if I could just have a do-over that I would have done that thing this way, and they regret those things. And, and they admit as they lie on their deathbed that much of what they pursued in life doesn't actually satisfy. It didn't lead to a marvelous life. Few people lay on their deathbed and say, oh, I just wish I didn't take vacation. I just wish I spent more time at the office. I wish I worked weekends. Nobody, you know, nobody lays on their deathbed and says these things, right? Because we understand that what leads to a marvelous life are the relationships that we have, the experiences that we can have as we participate with people and others it can lead to a marvelous life. Well, as we look at the Christmas story, the true account of the coming of the Son of God becoming flesh, we see, as we looked at last week, these shepherds out in the field. You know, first of all, you got Mary and Joseph, and Caesar Augustus says a, a decree is taken that a census should be taken of the entire world. And so they travel from Nazareth and Galilee all the way down to Bethlehem. And she is with child, and they are staying in an area where they put Christ in a manger because there wasn't room in the main part of the house for them to uh, occupy. So they went down and were, put it where the, they would keep the animals, as most people in their house in that day and age would have an area for that. And they, they put the baby in a manger, and then out in the field, an angel appears to the shepherds and just tells them these amazing things that go and you will find in the town of David. So in Bethlehem, you're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes or in, you know, a little baby wrap-up. It's a onesie. You're going to find a baby in a onesie. And uh, in that day and age, the onesie. And so you're going to find it, but it'll be lying in a manger, and that's how you'll know it's the Christ child. And the story picks up, if you have your Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 2. We'll begin with verse 15. When the angels had left these shepherds and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, nah, I don't want to do that. Let's just stay out here in the fields. I, nah, Were you, did you see something? I thought I saw something. No, of course that's not what they said, right? The angel appears and gives them this great news, and I don't think the angel was floating in the sky. I think he was right there on the ground. I think when the heavenly host appeared, it, it talks about the origin of all the heavenly hosts, not where they were floating. If you look at the Bible, angels don't have wings. I know, that's shocking, because now your nativity scene is just all out of whack. Now, there's cherubim in heaven who would cover themselves with their wings, but angels could have the ability to move to be, their origin was from a heavenly place. Most often, angels were mistaken for mighty warriors who looked like really big dudes who could be like mercenaries, or they were understood to be bright and glowing and, and messengers. But these angels show up, and so what happens? The shepherds have a choice to make, and this is what happens. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off 
and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This moment in the night of the shepherds became a marvelous, life-defining moment for them that an angel of God would come as a messenger and bring them a message not about themselves but about a child, that this child is the Messiah, the Christ, the long-awaited one. After 400 years of silence between the last written account of God's intervention with the people of Israel in the Old Testament and this moment, there's been 400 years of silence. The angel comes with good news to the least of these to tell them about a child lying in a manger. Kids are funny, especially when you get together for Christmas gatherings, right? You know how like when you have extended family, I have five nieces, by the way, and uh, one of my nieces, her name is Raven, and when she's much older now and a great, great niece, uh, she's awesome. But back in the day, she, you know how the terrible twos happen? They start at one and a half, and they go to about age four, and some of your teenagers are still there, just depending on how that whole thing went, right? Well, she, Raven, back in the day, she was like three years old. And we had all the family, and we're spread out all over my brother's house, and it's, you know, we're all kind of crammed in different corners. And so uh, we're sitting, we got a little card table, and Heather and I are sitting just by ourselves at the card table with Raven, and then there's, you know, family everywhere else. And Raven takes one of those big old, like, Hawaiian rolls, you know, the sweet rolls I'm talking about? She takes it, and she starts, I think she's going to take a bite, and she goes... And she starts to cram the whole thing, and I'm like, there is no way. There's no way that roll is going to fit in that mouth, right? No, she finds a way. She like squeezes it, packs it in, and gets it all the way in there. And I'm just, you know, as a, I, I'm just cracking. I look at Heather. I'm trying to keep my face straight. And, uh, and I look at Raven. I'm like, Raven, sweetheart, maybe let's take a little bit of that out so you don't, you know, choke on it. And she looks at me and she goes, huh? Huh? And I said, wait, I didn't understand. What would you say? And she, she spits the whole thing out right into her hand. And there's like a drool string still like to her lip, and she goes, she looks at me with just, I mean, just dead on right in the eye. She's like, not gonna, don't want to. And then she stuffs the whole thing back in her mouth and like just eats it down. And it takes her like five minutes, you know, of course. Like I, I look at Heather, I'm trying not to make eye contact with Heather because if I do, I'm going to lose it, right? I'm totally going to be like laughing because this is so funny. There's moments that we kind of like cross our arms. And we're like a little kid who says, not gonna, don't want to. I mean, a lot of us would admit, we've never had an angel appear to us and, you know, give us a message. You've never had a shining bright, and you think, of course, if a bright, shining angel appeared before me and gave me an instruction, of course I would do what the angel says. But some of you are like, maybe I wouldn't go. You know, I do have free will, you know, and I don't like being commanded what to do. And some of us in the room, we kind of cross our arms, we go, not gonna, don't want to. 
Because we don't like being patronized or commanded of what to do. Do you realize the Bible has different commands in it? And there's actually different types of commands. You may have heard in one place or another that any imperative in the Bible is a command that must be obeyed. And, well, that's not necessarily accurate. Because there's a different tone in imperatives in the Bible. An imperative is essentially a command. It it penetrates past the endless reasoning of intellect and the fluctuating passions of our emotion, which many of us take as stalling for inaction, and it directly addresses the decision of our core-making being. We often flounder in, well, should I do this or do I feel like it? But an imperative cuts through all that. It says, do it. Do this. From the time that Jesus began his earthly ministry, he started off with an imperative. His imperative command was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Matthew 4, 17. Jesus says, repent. It's a command. But do people still have free will? Sure. Could people be there and like, not gonna. Don't want to. Absolutely. But Jesus comes saying, turn. Repent means you're going this direction. Turn the course and the direction of your life back to God. You were living your own life. You were walking away from God. And he's saying, turn, repent. The kingdom of God is near. God become flesh gives us an imperative. You know, the imperative is the grammatical mood of kings. When a king says, do this, You have that instant choice, shall I or shall I not? It introduces a crisis into your life. It thrusts a decision upon you. And it's the line in the sand which determines your future relationship to the throne. When the king says, do this, your response will really determine the direction and the quality of your life, right? Well, Jesus, oftentimes we'd use an imperative. If we just used imperatives only, if we just looked at scripture with imperatives only, in a sense, we'd be reintroducing the law that all the striving would be up to you. God says, do this. And now all the doing and all the being is up to you. And that would be a works-based salvation. And we don't preach a works-based salvation. While God gives imperatives, there is this element of free will, and God simply wants us to cooperate with what he's already doing in our lives, cooperate with the salvation that is through what he has already done for us. He accomplishes the work by his Holy Spirit, but we have choice. Do we, shall I, or shall I not cooperate with the Holy Spirit? Many times in scripture, there are what are called passive imperatives. Sometimes it's a direct command, do this. There's no really choice in the matter. You, to be saved, you must repent, right? I must turn away from my sin. I must turn to God in my need for a savior. I must ask him to save me. I must surrender myself. He doesn't force himself on me. The angel shows up to the shepherds and says, today in the town of David, you will find a baby who's been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. But if you look back, the angel never says, so go on, do it now. 
I command you to leave your sheep and go find this baby. It's not there. Why? Because it's a passive imperative. A passive imperative are things in Scripture where it's directed to you, but you are not the active doer. You cooperate and as the recipient of someone else's doing. So in this case, it is God's doing. God is doing this work. God has become flesh. There's a baby. We are giving you opportunity to cooperate with what's God. And the responsibility to actually follow through is you. Shepherds, you need to leave the fields. You need to go find the Christ child. It's a passive imperative. But if you cooperate, your life could be marvelous. And scripture gives us a lot of passive imperatives. If you have your outline today, I've listed several of them on there for you. I want to look at one of the first ones there. It's found in Romans 12 too. It says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, rather, but be transformed by renewing of your mind. Can you transform your life? Can you on your own renew your mind? Probably not. But as you and I cooperate with God's Holy Spirit, as we replace the lies of the world with the truth of Scripture, our mind begins to change. God's Holy Spirit is working in us. He is making us a new creation, and we become transformed. And the ways we used to think and the ways that we used to think lead us to how we felt and then how we act. Now change. So the ways we think now align with his purposes because he is renewing us in salvation. So it's saying be transformed. Is that entirely up to you? No, we cooperate with the work of God. It says this, then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How many of you want to know what the will of God is? How many of you want to know, am I living in the will of God? And oftentimes you say, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I making the right decision? So if I'm in the will of God, then maybe I get the blessing of being in the will of God. But you've got to realize the will of God includes suffering. It's actually part of God's will that we suffer. Because we share in the sufferings of Christ as part of life that everybody suffers. We are mortal. But how we wander through that dark night of the soul is so much different when we cooperate with the Lord. So much different. There are other passive imperatives in Scripture where we get the chance to cooperate with what God wants to do in our lives. Look on your list there. Acts 2.40, it says, be saved, be transformed, as we looked at in Romans 12.2, be reconciled, 2 Corinthians 5.20, be restored, 2 Corinthians 13.11, be filled in Ephesians, be empowered in Ephesians, be humbled, humble yourself before God, and he will lift you up in 1 Peter, be sanctified in Revelation. What does a passive imperative say? It says, listen, 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 everybody, listen up. It says this, I implore you, Please participate with the work of God in your life. Because when you and I participate with what God is already doing, we can live a marvelous life. We become the recipient of letting God work in us and then by nature through us, not based on all of our performance, but on our cooperation with what he's doing in our lives. And some of you are saying, well, Dave, that's great and all, but I, I've never seen an angel. I, I've never had an angel like appear to me. A number of years ago, I was praying to God, and I knew after graduating from college, I would need to go to grad school. I would need to go three years full-time, past college, 
to graduate school to get a master of divinity degree. And I was like, Lord, there are a lot of schools out there. Which one do you want me to go to? And I was just praying, 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 God, you know, and just didn't have clarity yet, but I was seeking the Lord. I was asking, and, you know, all of, a lot of them would have been good. But I, I really was saying, Lord, you know, I really prefer best over just good. And so would you please, and, some, and finally I was getting frustrated. I was like, Lord, could you just please send me an angel? Just send me an angel and be like, Dave, go to Denver Seminary. And, you know, I'd be like, oh, Denver, not Talbot, you know, whatever. And, uh, and one day I'm in Long Beach and I'm driving down the, the road and I am driving this little Honda Accord with a sunroof. And I get in some of that late afternoon, like people just letting off work traffic and it's just stop and go. We come up to this, this uh, you know, light and it's a stoplight. I might have to wait two or three cycles through this stoplight, you know, and I'm just sitting there. And I'm not like the row right by the sidewalk. I'm like the second row in. And there's this guy over on the sidewalk. And like he leaves and he walks out among the cars and he comes right to my car. And he looks in the sunroof and he's like, hey man, can you, I just got to go a few blocks up. Can you give me a ride? And I was like, yes. I was like, this is it. This is angel, right? You know, so I open my door, let the guy in. We wait a couple cycles and I'm just starting some small talk. So all right, so... So where are you from? Right? Small talk. So anything you want to tell me? Nothing. Go a couple blocks up. He's like, thanks, see ya. Opens the door, shuts it, it's out. Darn it. You know, I just wanted an angel. It's God. I just need some clarity in my life. God doesn't always send an angel. He can do whatever he wants to do, can't he? God can do whatever God wants to do. But when I was saying, God, please send me an angel, he was like, no, Dave, that's not the way it will work. You probably expect one every time. If I do it now, you'll want one every time from here on out. He just knows us, doesn't he? But even if God sent an angel to you with his message, you and I might say, not gonna, don't want to. What if God's messengers have been reinforced by God's written word given to us? No shame here, but just being honest with ourselves. I just want everybody here, it's not a performance. Just to be honest, how many of you here in the room, just by show of hands, are willing to say, I have never read through the entire Bible. Like, I've never read this thing cover to cover. Just be honest. All over the room, right? Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty, just being there. And I I want to just ask, I just want to say, for how many more years? We have great intentions. But how could 2015 be different? If instead of waiting for an angel to come to me to tell me without any work on my part, what if I participated with the very message that God has given me right here? What if I read, it only takes like four or five chapters a day, and you read through the whole book in like a year. There's a great app. In fact, this next year, we're going to give you a reading plan so that you can get through a Bible in a year and just be like, what do I read today? And if I, if I stop along the way, then I just begin again. I just start from where I left off. Why? Because we want to commune with the living God. We need to hear the voice of God, not just take what we think about God and expect him to answer us, but I engage with his message, his will, what he wants me to do in my life. And I get to know God for who he says he is, 
versus who I just kind of think he is. God, who does your scripture reveal to me you really are? Because when we know who God is and we recognize his message to us, we can tell when it's an imperative because God's Holy Spirit begins to affirm that on the inside. What about this imperative? Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Jesus said to his disciples and to us as the church, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In other words, all the imperatives, obey those things, participate with what God is doing. Don't say, not gonna, don't want to, but instead turn around and say, yes, Lord, yes. Let me just ask, are you a disciple-making disciple? Or are you just a disciple? I believe, but I kind of just keep it to myself. Do you invest? Do you send? Do you speak? Do you go? The message, the word of God has come to you. Didn't take an angel to come to you, but you have the written word of God. It's available on our smartphones. It's immediate access. We've got it with us. And do we take the word of God and say, yes, I'll go. It's active. This imperative is not passive. It's active. It's a command. But still, we have choice. Will we cooperate with God or not? And why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we cooperate with God? Well, here's one thing I've learned in life, and if you're taking notes today, I think you'll reflect this too, that becoming obsessed with what people think is the quickest way to forget what God thinks about you. When you and I become obsessed with what everybody else thinks, it's the quickest way to forget what God thinks about us. And so we get fearful. Maybe I don't want to go. What if, I, what if I go? What if the shepherds were like, well, we went and found a baby, but it wasn't in a manger. What if we go and people think we're ridiculous? What if we? No, they said, let's go. And then they found out that God is faithful with what he promised in the first place. And they took the risk and they went. But often for us, we become afraid. Well, the very real characters in the Christmas account had that same choice. Will I consider more what other people think or what God thinks? Mary, God wants to impregnate you by the Holy Spirit. You've never had sex, but you will be with child. And he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. What does she say? She says, let it be done unto me as you have said. She had choice. Joseph is pretty much engaged, betrothed, which is stronger than our understanding of engagement, betrothed to be married to Mary and finds out she's with child. If he cares what everybody else thinks, then he divorces her, but he's going to be a nice guy about it, so he's, he wants to divorce her quietly. But then the angel shows up and says, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is, God is doing what is happening with her. And so he chooses to care more what God thinks than about what people think. Let me ask you the question. When you go Christmas shopping, do you shop based on what the other person's response is going to be or what they're going to think about you? 
I've got to give them this gift because if I give them this gift, they're going to like it, which means they'll like me. If we think about that for a minute, it's a little bit of a form of self-worship. I'm shopping for you so that you'll think well of me. I'm buying your admiration because I care what people think about me. It's so subtle. No wonder at times the joy gets sucked out of us at Christmas. God is saying that when we become obsessed with what people think about us, quickest way to forget what God thinks about us. However, becoming obsessed with what God thinks about you is the quickest way to forget what people think about you. When we understand what God says who we are, then it's going to counter what the world says we are. We're going to listen to his message in the word and we're going to respond and participate with what God says. And, and, and you'll be like, wow, that's countercultural. And you'll be like, I don't care. It's okay to be weird because normal isn't working for them. So I'm going to be weird. I'm going to follow the Lord because when I become obsessed about Jesus Christ, I care a whole lot less what those who hate him think about me. And Jesus says, don't be surprised when they hate you. They hated me first. When we become obsessed with what God thinks about us, we'll care less what people think about you. Listen, if you're not ready to be criticized for obeying God, then you're not ready to be used by God. When you care what God thinks about you, you still hear the criticism, but it doesn't sabotage your obedience. What often happens to us? We know what God wants us to do, but we hear the criticism of others, and so we sabotage our obedience. We pull back. Well, I guess I'm not going to do that. I guess I'm going to live like everybody else. But let me tell you, when you begin to obey the Lord, you're going to be criticized. You'll hear it. Believe me, I know. But it doesn't sabotage your obedience because the power of the people no longer has that power over you because you care more about what the creator of the universe thinks than the person sitting next to you. There's a, there is a uh, imperative, an imperative in Philippians. Paul says this to the people of Philippi. He's saying it to you and me as well. I want you to hear it again just at this time of year. In Philippians 4, 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. The command is to rejoice. And let me tell you, at this time of year, my family, we just went through a loss. My cousin's 19-year-old daughter just died. We've got other people who have just gone through loss in our church and other areas. You might be experiencing a Christmas without somebody. You might be alone on your own. You might have overwhelming debt. You may have any circumstance that tells you right now, don't rejoice, or you've got some of that. Some of you grew up in a situation, you get back together with people, and you have a little bit of that holiday dread. You really just, you're like, I just don't want to go on that day to this, you know, his family or my family or, you know, whatever. And you're experiencing that. And everything in you right now just says, don't rejoice, don't rejoice. But I've got to tell you, the enemy is a thief. He wants to take the rejoicing that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And he wants to steal it away with everything else because he wants to restrain God's people from worshiping God. And so Paul comes along and says, listen, Rejoice. 
Let me say it again. Rejoice. 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 Emmanuel has come to thee. Oh, is Rael. Great news. Rejoice. This time of year, everything else is going to tell you don't rejoice. So what do we do? We engage our act of obedience. I will choose by an act of the will to rejoice. All these other things, all the criticisms, all my own thoughts, that chatterbox that goes on in my head, it's going to tell me don't rejoice. This is not happy or something's wrong or, you know, whatever. You're going to get frustrated. And, and you and I, we have to push through those objections of our flesh to get to the things of the Spirit. And so we choose as an act of the will, even though I don't feel like it, I will rejoice. And guess what happens? Our heart catches up like the caboose of a train when the engine pushes through our will, pulls our feelings there. And so we rejoice that God became flesh and dwelled among us, that he paid for your sin, my sin on a cross, that this Christ child grew into the Messiah and conquered sin and death conquered mortality. Everybody lives forever somewhere. He paved a way so we could be with him. That is cause for great rejoicing. We mentioned this the other week, but I want to remind you about this, that extraordinary acts of God often just start with simple acts or ordinary acts of obedience. Just that simple decision to say, I will engage with God. I will lead myself. I will obey. I will read the Bible. I got to tell you something. Leaders are readers. There's no shortcuts around that. And you go, well, I don't read. Really? How do you get around on the streets? Right? We all read, but it's, it's, am I willing to invest? Am I willing to take the message? I don't need the messenger that's glowing in white when I've got the message right here in print. And I can read and then I lead because I'm leading myself now. I am cooperating with what God is already doing, his renewing work in me. And then guess what happens? I'm a leader, not because of title or position, but leadership simply in its basis form is influence. So I'm influencing me and God's word is influencing me. And now I influence those who are around me. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your family, maybe it's your friends, maybe it's the students in your class at school, maybe it's the people you work with. You, what God is doing in you begins to work through and influence them. Mary allows God to do this extraordinary work, obeys his plan. Joseph obeys and takes Mary as his wife. The shepherds seek, they say, let us go, and they run into town. And the right response to God's favor in our lives is cooperation with his ongoing work. And all these people seek God and they marvel at what God is doing through them. Do you want to live a marvelous life? Then we cooperate with what God is already at work with, what he is doing in your life. And when you and I cooperate with that, it takes the mundane and it makes it marvelous. And Jesus, this year, doesn't want to be a baby anymore to you or to me. He wants to be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. We will simply look back at our lives and maybe we misspell marvelous and we make it spelled like this. That we marvel at what God is doing through us. 
If you want to live a marvelous life, then sit back and cooperate with the Lord and you will marvel at what he did in and through you like shepherds who weren't anticipating it and for years and generations probably told the story that an angel appeared, that they ran into town. They told other people, the people marveled, not because it just came from shepherds, but they marveled that these shepherds were told by an angel that the Messiah has come. Could it be? The hopes of the generations realized here in our town, the least of the tribes of Israel, that it can be done right here. Well, when we marvel, it engages our heart because when God gets the heart, he gets everything. So we realize if you're taking notes today that we always give our best to what we value the most. Mary treasured up these things. As these marvelous experiences were happening, through her body like any mother does when she has a child and she looks into those little eyes and she just, like, how did that all work? There's a mystery to it that all that time of waiting, all that time came to this and then Mar Mary's treasuring it up like a new mom. She's treasuring it up like that God would work in and through her. She's marveling that shepherds she's never met run in from the fields. She's marveling at everything and the inconveniences of the season that she had to travel while nine months pregnant. She's marveling and she, she's thinking, she's pondering these things and treasuring them in her heart. Shepherds are marveling that God will work in and through them. And when you and I treasure Jesus, we give our head and our heart to his message and our obedience to his instruction. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed all around the room, so you're just thinking only of your own life. Some of you are realizing today that you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never said yes to Jesus. There have been plenty of times you crossed your arms and you said, not gonna, don't want to. And you stuffed that choking roll back in your mouth and it just hasn't served you well. But maybe today, maybe today is the day that you say yes to Jesus. If today you'd like to surrender your life to him, to allow him to come into your heart, make you a new creation, forgive you of your sin, and give you new life and transform you, then simply pray a prayer to him. Just silently where you sit, you might just pray this right after me. It's an introduction of you surrendering to God. You just say this, just say it to him. Jesus, today I say yes to you. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation. I believe that you came as a baby, that you lived a perfect life, that you died on a cross for my sin, and then you rose from the grave and you conquered death. I can't save myself, God. I need you. So today I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that, would you just slip up your hand? Just hold it where I can see it, anywhere around the room. Awesome, right here in the middle. Would you keep holding your hand up? Greatest decision you could ever make. I've got a friend here who wants to give you some information. Just right here in the middle, anywhere else around the room. If you'll just hold it up high enough, that the, this, you know, any of these people wandering around can see you. They'll get you that information. That's awesome. It's the greatest decision you could ever make. New life in Jesus. He comes in. He dwells in your heart. He makes you a new creation. Believers in the room, I, I know that as you were sitting here today, God's Holy Spirit was just talking to you about an area in your life where you've crossed your arms 
and you've said, not gonna, don't want to. You know what he's been calling you to do and you just haven't submitted to it. Maybe it's an area of your life that he's been saying, just, I implore you, just surrender to me in that area. And your heart has crossed its arms and said, not gonna, don't want to. And today, we just come to the admittance point, the surrender point, the breaking point that says, I will go. I'll participate with you, God. I don't know how to fix that but I will participate with you. Will you just take a moment and tell that believers in the room, this is your moment of decision. This is you raising your hand. This is you saying yes to Jesus. So today, we take just a quiet moment and do that before we move on. Father, we're so grateful that you would leave the marvelous, amazing realm of heaven and you would come here to earth to redeem us, to buy us, to purchase us back, not for how we think about you, but because you already thought a lot about us and you love us and you were compelled by that love. We're so grateful. Thank you, God. We give you worship in this season. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you give it up for what God's doing among us? That's good stuff. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.